Hello, folks. Uh, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, Danny Rains here. And uh, today, I think we shall talk about task-specific training. That seems to be a very interesting topic here lately, and a lot of conversation is revolving around it. Matter of fact, I just went up to Washington, D.C. and uh, down in Virginia last week and did task-specific training for a contractor to enter a substation. But to uh, kind of give you a little backstory on this thing, a lot of people don't quite understand. They slipped one sentence in, in the revision in 2014 that just changed to everything. I've spoken uh, locally with my uh, chief assistant appliance officer here in Atlanta, Region 4, and she, would, she and I had a long discussion. I actually let her read the article that will be, I think, in October edition on task-specific training. So you may want to uh, you may want to look at that when it comes out. Um, and like I said, let me give you the sentence itself, and you will see what I'm talking about. In paragraph 1910269, A alpha two, I large capital C, one sentence was never in there, but it's in there now. And it says, quote, the degree of training shall be determined by the risk to the employee for the hazard involved. Wow. Does that sound like a lawyer wrote that? It does to me. But anyway, I think what it all comes out, if you go back to read the preamble, uh, the preamble is all of the statements, the meetings, and everything that was gathered uh, prior to the issuing of the updated uh, 269 standard in 2014. And basically, there was a lot of conversations going on around the fact that I'm not qualified to do this and I'm not qualified to do that. And if you're not qualified, this, this, the 1994 version of the standard says, if you're not a 269A2 qualified employee, electrical employee, then you must be, uh, you must have someone escort you in to secured areas. Well, there you go. And now then that means the host company would have to supply a, a qualified 269A2 qualified person to stay with somebody that was working like in a substation or something like that uh, while they were in that secured area behind that lock. So that caused a lot of, lot of grief and a lot of conversations with a lot of companies because now, as you well know, and that's been 11 years ago, nine, well, nine years ago, coming up on 10, 11, since all of the preamble was done, there's less resources out there now than there were then. Uh, so, and I've, I've personally been told, well, one of some of my customers and like the one last week, they, they were told by their host company that, Hey, I don't have somebody to sit out here with you. You need to get training. Well, that particular construction company, uh, was working, uh, around the DC area and down in Richmond. So they were working for Pepco and for Dominion. And so basically what they did then, they were referred to me and said, okay, Danny can do task-specific training. So what I did is I, I came up with a curriculum 
that meets the 269 requirements, all of the 269A2 requirements, minimum approach distance, what's hot, what's not, existing conditions, uh, nominal system voltage, uh, knowledge of arc flash, things of this nature. A little bit in paragraph L, and that's the minimum approach, and then arc flash awareness. And came up with a five or six hour program and we would go through the classroom and go through every bit of that. Then we would go because they also put in the 2014 standard update that classroom uh, training alone is not qualification training. It's awareness and foundational training. So now you've got to have a proficiency demonstration. So I take the class then to a, a substation. I did it up in the... DC and I did it down in Richmond, Virginia, and we start at that substation fence and do a job briefing, do a fence inspection for grounds, gate inspection, yard inspection, equipment inspection, start analyzing the substation itself, and all this really depends on how big the station is too, by the way. We talk about the security of the gate, opening and closing, maintaining locked gates, then we go in the substation, determine what the nominal system voltage is, and that way we can look and see what the minimum approach distance is or what the host requires. And then we start walking around and looking at the substation and the equipment. And in this case, it was 115 uh, 34.5 station. That's what it was, 115 kV transmission, 34.5 distribution. And we start walking around looking and, you know, uh, identifying equipment in the substation, uh, what's hot and what's not, the that principle. And then again, too, if they explain to them then if uh, they had to work within minimum approach distances, which they can't with it energized because they're not qualified to do that, they can only work around it. And then, of course, in their case, they can work within a 10 feet, but they can't work within minimum approach because they they're not qualified to do that. So, and I think with that, uh, you know, the host companies were satisfied with that. Matter of fact, I talked to one of their employees this morning just to verify. He said, though, they're not 269A2 qualified employees. I said, no, sir. They are task specific to work in areas of energized equipment that's a secured area. In other words, they know what their limitations are. And that's, that was the entire it all goes back to 2014. The first time I actually provided this training was just about the time the standard came out. And that was uh, back in February of the, it was not, the N NRPM, the notice of proposed rulemaking was out. And then it actually hit the CFR on April Fool's Day, <laughs> April 1st of 2014. Ha ha. But, uh, it was not funny either because it really caused a lot of a lot of things happened in that in that time frame, including about forty five contentious points that we may talk about that on another day. Uh, I have a list of things that the union, the IBW, the contractor association, a lot of other companies and and representatives uh, filed lawsuits against OSHA. Said, "Hey, we can't work according to the new standard." It makes it impossible for us to do this. TOVs and all that came up in transmission, so there was a lot of stuff going on. The first company I ever did it for was an environmental reclamation company in Florida. 
and uh, they were working for one of the larger host utilities down there, and they would go in. They'd have a, an oil leak, and they would have to go in that substation and clean up the oil leak. And, of course, that particular company said, look, we don't have time to have somebody sit with you all day while you're cleaning up an oil spill. We've got to go in there and, you know, look and get you in, switch it out if we have to, get it grounded if we have to, whatever. But you got to be able to work in that substation by yourself. So there was the first opportunity I ever had and I ever presented task-specific uh, training for, for companies and really been doing it ever since. But in the article, you'll see the article is going to come out next month. I think it's in the October issue. And the employer must defend, if the employer must defend the company in the event something goes wrong, what's the first thing OSHA asks for? And it's training records. And, you know, training records alone now will not get the job done. You got to have training records of who, what, when, where, and what was taught. And now you've got to have documentation on proficiency demonstrations. There's always been a sentence in 69A2 that require companies to at least once a year observe employees performing their tasks and be sure that they've gotten and are responded to the training they need just to perform that task. And they're using it. They're doing you know, whether it's switching, tagging, whether it's job briefings, PPE, doesn't name it. Well, that's always been in there. But now then, if it's a specific task, now we got to watch them do that task. And it's got to be documented who, what, where, when, and why. And that's the only that's the only thing I can tell you. That's the most defensible thing you're going to come when it comes to an OSHA citation or in the event there's something happens to one of these contractors, and I think we've done a contract um, management class on this. I can't keep up with where I do all these things, but uh, that's another that's another class that's well worth the time to read over. And I know there's an article in IP Magazine about contractor management because if contractors is working in a security area for a host con uh, host company in a tort liability case, the most logical and most likely lawsuit that's going to come out of it is going to be an a contract employee to the host company because under most states, workers' comp law will not let an employee sue their, their employer for punitive actions beyond workers' comp costs. Well, so you can give them the training now, which makes it very good. You can actually have them demonstrate the knowledge and understanding of that training, perform to the expectation of that training, and then document all that. And then that's that was the crux of this in, entire article right here. And so, you know, we answered the question as to why the, all this occurred and when did it occur, because I think it's pure economics and just good business now. The question is, and I, and I always have this reservation, and I tell everybody I do this for, if somebody gives you a key to that substation or lets you in that substation and then you're working in there and they leave, then you you are the task-qualified person. You should know what to do. And if you don't, you don't need to be in there. 
I mean, you know, I'm as comfortable in a substation as I am sitting in this office chair right here. But there are times, you know, when things happen in substations, unexpected things, that basically uh, can get you on get get you nervous and on edge. Okay, for sure, especially if you've got some kind of failure. Another thing too about going in substations is the new is the is the FERC and the NERC laws, the the National Electrical Reliability Council and federal councils that require. And basically, I I'm 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 in the understanding that electrical systems are considered part of the nation's defense, and basically, uh, you know, that that is national homeland security territory okay so you want to be sure you know you don't want to walk in. we used to just walk in a substation back in the day we didn't pay anything to do we'd unlock the lock and go in most substations today especially larger substations in urban and suburban areas are are guarded with security cameras and alarms and you know motion detectors everything that can go they can put in there because of what jim willis was talking about a while ago uh in our IP forum, is that there's been probably seven or eight different occasions in this past two or three weeks, that's last two to three weeks, where there's been vandalism in substations across all the way from out west to back east and down south. And I don't know what that is, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't understand why anybody would want to shoot a bushing on a power transformer or put a hole in a tank for oil to run out. But the people on do stuff like that so that's another reason for this task qualifications right here to recognize any kind of vandalism that may be going on sometimes it's obvious like a cut fence but then sometimes it's not so obvious and it's like i tell people all the time if you if you're not accustomed to going in a substation put your hands in your pocket and if you ever take them out never raise them your hands over your head and you're usually okay you won't get into a lot but you don't want to put yourself in a position to where something happened at substation, you could be in harm's way. And you got to be able to recognize conditions and hazards and everything else to where you can, uh, you can avoid things of that nature. So, uh, I will, uh, I will kind of leave it there. I guess I'm, I don't want to say demonstrative proficiency. We talked about that. And also, uh, Let's see what else. I'm make sure I covered all my bases in here today. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it was one of the, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, they told us when they updated the standard back in 14. They told us in six, like 2006, they were going to update this 269 standard, which I said, well, my goodness, it's about time. They hadn't been done to us since 94. And, uh, you know, when it finally when it finally got to the point to where it started to be ready to release to the code, to the CFR, you know, things really started happening. There was more news came out. They said, well, there's going to be four major changes, fall protection, minimal approach distance, arc flash, PPE, clothing. Well, there was more than four major changes. This is one of them. I call this one a big one. <laughs> okay. And, uh, of course, uh, there's others, there's others in there that we may have an occasion to speak on later on because, uh, 
you know, I, I love to I love to look at the older versions and the newer versions and compare the two and try to figure out why things were changed. You can find all that information in the preamble. So if you ever want to go back and read, it's a lot of reading. So, But if you want to, want to find out exactly why things change like that, industry requires it and demands it. And the economy of the companies, I think, uh, you know, supports the fact that we just, we cannot operate the way we did 30, 40, 50 years ago when I started. So hopefully that answered task specific training. Just remember, classroom alone is not the subject. Okay. It's, uh, you know, that doesn't cover the subject and qualify anybody. That basically gives them the foundation to go and actually demonstrate those proficiencies. Well, with that, I will, uh, I'll close in on this, and I think uh, Nick has asked me to give you a little trailer here on uh, what I'm going to speak on in the San Diego conference. Uh, so with that, I'll talk about uh, system grounding, temporary system grounding for the protection of the employee, you know, paragraph N. And, of course, that's one of my favorite subjects, and Jim Vaughn and I usually do this, but I don't think he's going to be there, so... Uh, I guess it's, I guess it's going to be me and somebody. I don't know who, but basically, what we're going to talk about is not, you know, what to do. You know what to do. Why do you do what you do? I, you know, and that's when I try to be the why guy, the why behind the what. If we understand what's in it for us, we'll. I think we stand a greater chance of, of following those procedures than we do ignoring them. If we realize the danger and and the the true uh, gravity of the entire situation, because uh, as many people um, get hurt, and some even becomes fatalities on induced voltages, and that's one of the things that uh, people just don't understand. There's all kinds of the things we have to protect ourselves from system grounding. We have neutral return currents. We have induced voltages. We have a lot of different ways, back feeds, you know, system voltage and source voltage. That's what I call, you know, system voltage is coming off generator. It's supposed to be there. A source voltage can come from anything from a lightning strike to a, an 8KW generator sitting in somebody's backyard. So that's what we're going to talk about. Why we ground either use, a lot of people do bracket grounding. I'm going to talk about bracket grounding and also equipotential grounding. And, uh, you know, the EPZ zone that we set up to protect us in, and I'll just leave you with one thought. If you're equipotential at all points in your work area, they can never be current flow. And if they can't be current flow, you can't get hurt because voltage is not what kills us. Current flow does. With that, I'm going to close. I probably ran over and I'm sorry, but, uh, thank you for attending and thank you for listening to this. If you have any questions. Uh, you have my contact information, rainsafety at gmail.com or 770-354-7360. I'll be glad to help you anytime I can, if I can. So God bless, have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Utility Business Media and its employees. It is strongly recommended that you discuss any actions or policy changes with your company management prior to implementation.